please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, the second chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus. And we'll dive into really a new section. In order to understand this section, though, we need to see the part in view of the whole, as we've been doing for the last several weeks. We're going to read the entire paragraph and then dive in really only on one verse this morning. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air of the spirit that's now working, in the sons of disobedience. Among them too, among them we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. But but God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, made us alive together with Christ, for by grace you've been saved. Raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. A few moments ago, we sang one of my favorite hymns, The Love of God, F.M. Lehman's wonderful, majestic lyrics. Let me repeat those for you. Even though we just sang them, sometimes it helps to hear them poetically, kind of away from the, the music, just to hear the sound of the words. The love of God is greater far than tongue or pen can ever tell. It goes beyond the highest star and reaches to the lowest hell. The guilty pair, this is Adam and Eve, bowed down with care. God gave his son to win. His erring child, he reconciled and pardoned from his sin. Second verse, which we did not sing this morning, And when hoary or old time shall pass away and earthly thrones and kingdoms fall, when men who here refuse to pray on rocks and hills and mountains call, God's love so sure shall still endure, all measureless and strong, redeeming grace to Adam's race, the saints and angels' song. And then what many consider to be some of the most Amazing words outside of Holy Scripture. Someone has described this verse like that. Could we with ink the ocean fill? And were the skies of parchment made? Were every stalk on earth a quill and every man a scribe by trade? To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole 
those stretched from sky to sky. And then that refraining chorus, O love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong. It shall forever endure the saints and angels' song. Do those words resonate with your heart? Do they reflect anything resident in your heart? Do they motivate fresh and new affections toward God? Do they stimulate deep appreciation for God's love? Does God's love move your heart? Have you thought deeply about what it means that God is a loving God? And the reason I ask that is everyone's default is to prescribe to God, according to Psalm 50, prescribe to God attributes of ourselves, which means a fickle love, an insecure love, a fading love. What we want to do this morning is follow the Apostle John's command and admonition. Listen to what he says in 1 John chapter 3. John is often called the, the apostle of love because he speaks so much of it. 1 John 3, 1. John says, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. Just stop right there. See, stop, observe, recognize how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we would be called the children of God. John calls us to see the love of God, to think of the love of God, to consider how great a love the Father has bestowed on us. In John's epistle, 1 John, we learn a lot about God's love, but perhaps nothing more profound than this. 1 John 4, 8, and then he says it again in 4, 16. God is what? Love. God is love. He says it again in chapter 4, verse 16. We've come to know and believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. In the next few weeks, as we kind of move toward finishing this paragraph in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we're going to be taking a deep dive into understanding God's character which really has an umbrella over all of it as his love. When describing this aspect of God, one of the many attributes of God, his love, the Bible uses several words that are almost synonymous with different specific nuances. For example, when, when we read of God's love, it's the same and a cousin or a sister or a twin or a brother to God's compassion. God's loving kindness, his has said in the Old Testament, which takes about three pages in my Hebrew lexicon to, to define his loving kindness. God's mercy, God's grace, God's patience, God's forbearance, God's tolerance, all of these point to God's essential goodness, which is a synonym for his lovingness. Psalm 119, verse 68 one of the anchors to my life. You are good and you do good. God's goodness is expressed to us in these terms that are really kind of all tributaries flowing into and out of his love. 
So here in Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we're gonna find three main workhorses, by the way, these, these words that, that kind of work together that all are overlapping but have specific nuances as well. We're gonna, we're gonna read of Elias, Agape, and Charis. Elias is mercy, Agape is love, and Charis is grace. These all just kind of expand and contract around each other. They all point to God's personality, his, his disposition, as it were, toward us, his character. Today, we're going to pick up two of these, mercy and love, and next week, grace will be added to this mixture as well. We're not going to be able to get beyond verse 4 today, and I struggled to get all of verse 4 in. Uh, just full disclosure, this first point that we'll see in a minute, I was tempted to make it a two-week study, but I knew you would judge me, and so I didn't. We're going to get through verse 4, Lord willing. I think you're going to discover with me, though, the richness and depth of God's character demonstrated in the gospel of salvation work together. So in order to break this, this verse down, verse 4, and we'll, we'll pick up verse 4 and add it to our study next week. But just looking at verse 4, we're going to discover together three dispositions of God's saving nature. Three dispositions of God's saving nature. This is how he is before we look at what he does. Three dispositions of God's saving nature. We have a saving God, and we're going to look deeply into what he's like to be a saving God. The first is in the first two words of verse 4. God is astonishing in response to us. God is astonishing. I would almost say unbelievable, astounding. Pick your word, astonishing in response to us. And we pick this up in the two simple words, but God, ho de Theos, but God, and it's the versative. As we've noted before, the main subject in the opening paragraph of chapter 2 is actually not introduced until verse 5. That's the first verb. Everything else is prepositional, is, is a participially attributed to this description, these descriptions of us. The main verb is here in verse 4. God, I mean, excuse me, the main subject is God here in verse 4. The main verb is in verse 5, made us alive. The introduction of the main subject comes with a theological and grammatical note of drama. But God, you, you cannot emphasize this enough if you understand the first three verses. In these two words, through Paul's pen, the Holy Spirit moves from the dreadful position of every sinner ever born to God's disposition as the great and only Savior. Remember, look at verse 1. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Then he tells us what that means in three descriptions, beginning in verses 2 and 3. You formerly walked according to the course of this world. We had a worldly worldview, a, a diabolical, selfish-oriented worldview. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now working in the sons of disobedience, we were controlled by the devil and his agenda. And among them, too, 
Among them, we too all formerly lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging in the desires of the flesh and the mind, but by nature children of wrath, even as the rest. So we had the problem of the world influencing us evilly, the devil evilly, and our own flesh leaned into evil desires. That's pretty comprehensive. That's bad news. But God did something about that. By the way, the Bible is full of but God statements, but God inferences. I, I just outlined a few that were, I think, helpful to my own heart as I was studying this. Psalm 73, verse 26, Asaph wrote, My flesh and my heart may fail. Think about that. My flesh and my heart, my inside, my outside may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. In contrast to our condition, Asaph says, God, but God crashes through. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. Consider your calling, brethren, that there were not many wise according to the flesh, not many noble, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. By the way, the foolish things there, that's you and me. We're foolish things. He's chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. The chosen the weak things of the world. That's us again. To shame the things that are strong. And the base things of the world. And the despised. God has chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before God. He says, consider your salvation and that the reason you're here is you were in a terrible condition, but God did something about it. One of my favorite, I know it's kind of cheesy for a preacher to say that because I always think of Spurgeon who said every verse raises his hand when he's preaching or saying, you know, what's my favorite verse? He says, pick me, pick me. I feel like that sometimes. But Romans 5, listen to this, verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Listen with fresh ears through whom we have obtained our introduction by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice or exult in hope of the glory of God. We've we've covered this many times. This is amazing that Paul says we exult, rejoice, and hope in the glory of God that's to come. That's heaven. And then he uses the same word in the next verse and says not only this, but we also rejoice or exult in our tribulations. And if you're reading that for the first time, you want to hit the brakes and say, what? We rejoice in our tribulations in the same way we rejoice in the hope of heaven? And he tells us why. Knowing that. And so many times we've said that the pattern of counseling your own heart is asking yourself, what do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? We usually operate in that order. I feel a certain way, which makes me think a certain way, which makes me question or doubt the things that God's word teaches me that I should know. And we need to reverse that whole polarity where we, 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 we know and believe, which makes us think the right way, which helps us control how we feel. may not change it, but it helps us pers- put it into perspective and control how we feel. Well, Paul says that. Not only this, we rejoice in our tribulations knowing. How can we rejoice in tribulations? Because we know some things. What do we know? Tribulation brings about perseverance. Perseverance brings about 
Proven character. Proven character brings hope. Hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One will hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for the good man, someone would dare even to die. But God, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. And not only this, we also rejoice or exult in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. But God crashes into our unsaved state. But God, looking at our need, comes to rescue us. I love Acts chapter 13, verse 28. Though they found no ground for putting Jesus to death, they asked Pilate that he be executed. When they carried out all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the cross and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. Now, shifting back here to Ephesians 2, Paul is making an amazing central contrast that God did something amazing in contrast to our dreadful, our lost, our terrible condition spelled out in verses 1 to 3. He uses similar language to talk about this to the Colossians. In Colossians 1, verse 13, he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So Paul calls this same but God moment to the, to the Colossians a rescue effort. He rescued us. It's a contrast. But God, we were in trouble. But, but God, God did something about it. Now, before we get to what he actually did, which is in the next verse, and we'll get there next week, we need to ask some questions. What would make God want to rescue rebels? Doesn't that seem odd? What would make God desire to raise the spiritually dead who were under the domain of his enemy, Satan, born with a stiff arm in his face against him from their very birth? What would motivate the holy God to liberate enslaved sinners. Well, the rest of verse 4 provides that answer. Actually, two answers. Three dispositions of God's saving nature. God is astonishing in response to us, but God, he rescued us. Number two, God is rich in mercy toward us. Rich in mercy toward us. Look at this little phrase, but God And then a little parenthetical expression, being rich in mercy. As you would expect from any great theologian, Paul goes straight to the taxonomy or the category or the designation of theology proper, which is the study of God and God's nature himself, 
to understand God's character for his theological explanation of what God did in that but God statement. He begins with God's mercy. God being rich in mercy. What is mercy? Greek scholar Dan Wallace explains, mercy is God's compassion for the helpless that relieves their situation. Let's think about that a minute. Mercy is God's compassion, I love that word, for the helpless that relieves their situation. While grace involves giving believers what they do not deserve, mercy means that God does not give what is deserved. That's important. Think about this. Grace is giving us unmerited favor, the favor of God that we don't deserve. Mercy is God not giving us his judgment. It's withholding his anger and wrath, which makes sense that Paul would start here because he just told us in verses 1 to 3 the reasons that we are a lightning rod for God's wrath. Notice the grammar. Paul says that mercy is a part of God's being, God being rich in mercy. Not only is mercy a part of God's personality, Paul tells us that God is rich in it. In that book we've been reading together as a church, Gentle and Lowly, Dane Ortland observes this, quote, Nowhere else in the Bible is God described as rich in anything, end quote. That's a pretty profound statement that rich in mercy is the only thing that the Bible tells us God is rich in. Now, he's obviously in a, uh, uh, indescribably rich and wealthy in everything he is and everything he does, but this is a particular signature that's attra- attached to mercy. He continues on. Orland says, I love this. God is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. Isn't that good? He is a billionaire in the currency of mercy. He is inclined not to give us what we deserve. How can you prove that? Take your finger and feel your pulse. You're alive. You're not in hell. Mercy is the word elias. Carries the idea of withholding what is due. It's the granting of kindness or concern. Expressed for someone in need. It's also translated mercy, compassion, pity, and clemency. I I don't know exactly what this illustrates, but when the boys were growing up, occasionally, and maybe right or maybe wrong, we would try to teach them different attributes of God at different points in their life. And I remember sometimes when the boys deserve the rod of reproof we would take them to that special place in our house and we would explain to them the due penalty of their error and what was coming and and uh, and then say but you know what today we're going to we're going to give you mercy and you're not going to be spanked and today you're, you're going to experience mercy well that was wonderful as a lesson but it has some unintended consequences because the next day when they were back in the special place for the special due penalty of their error, okay, you know, this happened and you're, you're going to get three swats for what you did. Dad, give me mercy. The experience of mercy pulls on the heart to want more mercy. 
And God is rich, a billionaire, and wealthy in mercy. Can I go on reading a little bit more with our friend Dane Ortland? He points us to a Puritan, Thomas Goodwin, who says this, quote, God has a multitude of all kinds of mercies. How does he, why does he say that? Because in 2 Corinthians 1, 3, Paul says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies. He's the Father of mercies, plural, multiple expressions of withholding what we deserve. God has a multitude, says good one, of all kinds of mercies. As our hearts and the devil are the father of various kinds of sins, so God is the father of a variety of mercies. There's no sin or misery, but God has a mercy for it. There is no sin or misery, but that God has a mercy for it. He has a multitude of mercies for every kind, of every kind. As there are a variety of miseries which the creature is subject unto, so he has in himself a shop, a treasury of all sorts of mercies divided into several promises in the scripture which are but so many boxes of his treasure, the caskets of a variety of his mercy. Then he says this, if your heart be hard, his mercies are tender. If your heart be dead, he has mercy to liven it. If you be sick, he has mercy to heal you. And if you be sinful, he has mercies to sanctify and cleanse you. God's mercy is completely applied from his disposition and his kindness, from his will. We studied Romans a few years ago and I'll never forget going through Romans chapter 9, which was, in some senses, really difficult territory. We, we spent a lot of time in Romans 9. But the accent on God's mercy is not to be missed. And the fact that God is the one who disposes mercy at his will. Just listen. You, you turn there if you want, but listen is okay. Romans chapter 9, verse, 20, verse 15, excuse me. Romans nine fifteen. For he says to Moses, this is an expression of, uh, a quotation rather, of Exodus chapter 33. I, God says, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Remember, the context of this is very difficult. He's saying God chooses some and doesn't choose all. This is a, this is a moment where the reader just says, what? That doesn't sound fair. And his answer is really no answer except the character of God. I will have mercy on, drum roll, whom I have mercy. That's no explanation at all. It's an attribution of God's disposition. And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So, then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. the scripture he makes it even more difficult he dares to go where your mind dares not to go for the scripture says to pharaoh for this reason for this purpose i raised you up to demonstrate my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed throughout the whole earth so then 
Romans 9, 18, God has mercy on whom he desires and he hardens whom he desires. Now, after verse 18, you can hear the screeching of the theological brakes. Paul hears it too, which is why he says, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who resists his will? If God has mercy on whom he has mercy, if he, if he hardens whom he hardens, how can that be fair? On the contrary, who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? The thing molded will not say to the molder, why did you make me like this, will it? Or does not the potter have a right over the clay to make from it the same lump, one vessel for honorable, vessel for honorable use and another for common? What if God, although willing to demonstrate his wrath to make known his power, make his power known, endure with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for his destruction? destruction. Well, that's an incredible statement. Everyone deserves destruction. What if God exercised some patience towards some? And he did so to make known the riches, the wealth, of his glory upon vessels, containers of mercy which he prepared beforehand for glory. Even us, whom he called, not only from among Jews, but also from among Gentiles. Now, everybody asks at that point, well, how, 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 that doesn't seem fair. I, I want to be a vessel of mercy. How can I be a vessel of mercy? This is what's so beautiful about this text. Paul answers in the same context down in Romans 10, verse 4. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness. Here it is. To everyone who believes. No one can shake their fist at God and say, why have you not chosen me? Because the answer to if you're chosen is simply this. Will you believe? You say, that sounds like doublespeak. That's what Paul said. You can know that you are a vessel of mercy if you will believe the gospel and trust Christ as Lord and Savior. Faith in the gospel, belief in Jesus as Lord and Savior are the proof and evidence of being a chosen vessel of God's mercy and salvation. Yes, there's human responsibility and it's in parallel and in tandem with God's sovereignty and they never contradict This receiving, reception of mercy is nothing that you and I ever do to merit or earn, just like grace and love. He saved us, Titus 3 says, not on the basis of the deeds which we've done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit. Again, Ortland helps us here. He has a whole chapter on this. That's why I'm so drawn to his insights. He says, perhaps looking at the evidence of your life, you do not know what to conclude except that his mercy, this mercy in God, in Christ, has passed you up. You ever felt like that? Maybe you have been deeply mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed by the one person you should have been able to trust. Abandoned taken advantage of. Perhaps you carry the pain that will never heal until you're dead. If my life is any evidence of the mercy of God in Christ, you think, 
I'm not impressed. He goes on, to you I say, the evidence of Christ's mercy toward you is not your life. It's not your experience. The evidence of his mercy toward you is his, his life. He was mistreated, misunderstood, betrayed, and abandoned eternally in your place. If God sent his own son to walk through the valley or condemnation, rejection, and hell, you can trust him as you walk through your own valleys on your way to heaven, end quote. Have you experienced God's mercy? You know how you can do that? Believe the gospel. Turn to Christ and believe the gospel. And he will give you mercy, which is withholding the rightful judgment. We could have taken a lot more time on that. We're going to keep going. Third, God is great in his love to us. Three dispositions of God's saving nature. God is astonishing in response to us. God is rich in mercy toward us. Third, God is great in love to us. Look at the last phrase. Now we get the why. Because he, he's rich in mercy, but God rescued us because of his great love with which he loved us. There's a lot of stacking up in the original language here. Because of his great love, he loved us out of his great love. Wow, do we live in a world that misunderstands and misunderestimates love. We all tend to trivialize love, sentimentalize love, emotionalize love. Just spend a few minutes listening to the radio. Most songs are about love. And a few of them, very few of them, I should say, agree with each other on what love is. I remember that one song, love is a feeling you feel when you've never felt that way before. Well, that's descriptive. We naturally bring misunderstandings about love that we see in this world into our understanding and projection about God's love to us. This is agape love. We've talked about this many times. Let me make it as simple as I can. Agape love is an undying, I'll say this a couple times, it's an undying commitment to do what's best for the beloved, no matter the cost or sacrifice. Agape love is an undying, it doesn't stop, an undying commitment to do, it's an action, an undying commitment to do what's best For the beloved, the one loved, no matter the cost and no matter the sacrifice. We can also say it's an unconditional commitment to an imperfect person when we look at at agape from God's perspective. Again, I go back to pick up Romans 8, excuse me, Romans 5, verse 8. He says, There's an honorable kind of love in verse 6 and 7. There's an honorable kind of love that if someone would die for their friend, that's honorable, that's noble, and it is. (laughs) But Paul says God doesn't love like that. God didn't die for honorable and noble friends. But God demonstrates 
his own love toward us in that while we were yet what? Sinners. Christ died for us. Illustration we've used so many times. If you're in the army and someone, the enemy tosses a grenade into the barracks while, some, while the platoon is sleeping and one brave soldier gets up and jumps on the grenade absorbing the shrapnel, saving his friends. That's the noble man dying for his friends that Paul points to in Romans 5, 6, and 7. But Paul says that's not what God did. He took the rightful grenade that goes into the enemy camp and he dove on that to save the enemies from death and destruction. And the enemies, friends, are you and me. God loved with the commitment to do what was best for his people at any cost. And you know what the cost was? You know what the cost was. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, the begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Similarly, John says in 1 John 4, 9, by this the love of God was manifested to us. How? That God sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. In this love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment, the propitiation for our sins. God had a great love with which he loved us. God's love was expressed by giving us his son and having him executed instead of and for us. Back to our song. Do you, do you think often about the love of God? How rich and full, how measureless, how strong? By the way, the Christian's ability and willingness Think about this. Ability and willingness to love others is directly connected to God's love for us. 1 John 4, 19. We love, we love because he first loved us. Our love for others is a simple imitation of God. But that's another sermon. And one of those sermons we'll get to in Ephesians 5 because Paul talks a lot about love in Ephesians. Wives, be subject to your own husbands, Ephesians 5.22 says. As to the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ also is the head of the church, he himself being the savior of the body. But as the church is subject to Christ, so also wives ought to be to their, to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love, same word, love your wives. Okay, what does that mean? Just as Christ also loved the church. And gave himself up for her so that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word that he might present to himself the church in all her glory, having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. So husbands ought to love their own wives. 
as their own bodies. For he who loves his own wife loves himself. Climax is down in verse 33. Nevertheless, even though he's talking about the gospel, let each of you love his own wife even as himself. Here's the point. Unless you understand how God, through Christ, loved the church, you cannot understand husbands how to love your wives and no none of us can understand how to love one another unless we understand God's love for us unconditionally. It's a commitment. It's a doing. Our dreadful condition in these first three verses of Ephesians 2 shines a light on God's love in an important way. Please listen carefully. God does not love you because he saved you. He saved you because he loved you. That's what this verse is telling us. This is what's remarkable. In our fallen, wretched, dreadful, Satan-run lives, he looked at us with mercy, with compassion and love and gave us himself and gave us the gospel. You have to link this back to chapter 1, verse 4. Just as Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless before him. Listen. In love... He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to himself according to the kind intention of his will to the praise of the glory of his grace which he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. Do you hear how that matches the, the, the response of God to our lost condition here in Ephesians 2.4? Here's the rub. We most often doubt God's love based on how we feel rather than what we know, what we're told, what we read, what the scriptures affirm. Your feeling or not of being lovable has nothing to do with God's love. Truth be told, we should probably feel most unlovable most of the time. But it's that condition that God expresses his love to us. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? So back to our little self-counseling we go to year after year after year here. What do I feel? What do I think? What do I know? Your feeling and your thinking will be messed up unless you get to what you know and believe. And that's why we study God's word. Who will separate us from the love of God in Christ? This is Romans eight thirty-five. Who will separate us from such love? Will tribulation separate us from love? The implied answer is no. Distress, no. Persecution or famine, no, no. Nakedness, peril, sword, no. Just as it is written, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We were considered as sheep to be slaughtered. But in all these things, we overwhelmingly conquer through him who loved us. It's the way we come in. It's the way we exist in this world. We come into the kingdom this way and we wait 
for his return this way. Then he says, For I'm convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor principalities, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 86, 15. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abundant, overwhelming, in love, loving kindness, and truth. There are two simple takeaways here. Really, just two responses. The first is to those of you who may not know Christ, and that is to receive his love. How do you receive his love? How do you become a vessel of mercy? By believing the gospel. Believing that the only way to heaven is through Jesus Christ, God's son, who died your death in your place on the cross, was raised from the dead to give you the hope of eternity with him. It's to receive and believe that. And I would beg you, don't leave this room. Don't leave the building without coming to an understanding that you've been Saved by God's grace because you believed. But for those of us who, uh, who are believers, would you just very briefly, very quickly, look over at Revelation chapter 3? To the church at Laodicea, Jesus said this in Revelation 3.19. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. There's the application that the Holy Spirit gives us in the writing of Scripture, and Jesus gives us from his very lips is the application for our understanding of the love of God. Those whom I love, Jesus says, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Be zealous be serious about sin and turn from it. There's the application of God's love for believers straight from the lips of Jesus himself. Oh, love of God, how rich and pure, how measureless and strong it shall forever endure the saints an angel's song is the love of God the song of your heart as a response to this text well I pray it is